everybody, it's Andy here, and uh, we've got uh, Embers Rich and a guest on here, Jason Sylvester, who's also known as Diogenes of Maybury. Difficult to get the tongue around that sometimes. Diogenes of Maybury. Diogenes of Maybury. Do you want to tell us why, Jason? Uh, well, Diogenes was the Greek cynic who uh, told Alexander that, you know, get out of my light. Uh, who's basically disdainful of human stupidity in general. And Mayberry, because that's the fictional setting of the old Andy Griffith show with, with Ron Howard, you know, the, the wholesome sort of small town American values. So uh, it came out, I started writing my first book during the election with Obama, when the uh, the first election of Obama back around 2008, 2009, when the Republican right just kept harping about, you know, small town, wholesome, you know, you know, Christian values. So I'm basically the cynic of small town USA, even though I don't live in the Amer in the United States and I'm not American. So, but you know, criticizing, <laughs> criticizing the American evangelicals. Cause you're in Bangkok, aren't you? And it's like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, nice. it's good to have you on mate. Um, and the reason why we got you on is, is basically cause what we wanted to talk about on, uh, on this podcast was uh, the Bible myth, truth, the difference between the two um and we've had some long conversations about uh, a lot of this stuff uh and i've got to say you've educated me a lot on some of the some of the myths of the bible and i wanted to sort of go through some of those because again sure. one of the things that uh theists tend to do is they they go full-on you know i mean young earth creationists everything in the bible is completely true uh to the letter everything it's a history of our world right through to the other side of that, which is um, people using the Bible as analogy or um, it's, it's stories, moral stories to try and sort of get some sort of point across, you know. Uh, and when I've talked to you, it's always been something completely different. So uh, I'd, it'd be great to talk about some of the things that you've sort of looked at i mean we, we talked a little bit about the patriarchs you want to sort of just have a little bit of a, a chat about this concept right from the beginning the patriarchs, sure. right from the beginning okay. of the vibe so a lot of the material needs to be contextualized and i think that's what a lot of the theists who read the bible uh literally and even maybe not once you don't necessarily take every word literally but they still tend to think that the bible is some sort of historical document and a lot of it really needs to be understand in the political context. And the more I research, even in my new book, the, the amount of politics that is in religion is just astounding. So if you look back to the, the sort of critical time is around 622 BCE, and this is what is known as the Josianic reform. So King Josiah uh, around 622 is in a unique position. So prior to Josiah, uh, the kingdom of Judah is a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire, but around around his time, the Assyrian Empire is waning. So they're under pressure uh, in the east from the Medes and the uh, and the Persians, and in the west from the Egyptians. So basically, the the Assyrian Empire has collapsed. They're no longer a vassal state of that uh, of that empire. Um, but Egypt is starting to rise again. Now you you go back about four hundred years, four or five hundred years, and and more. The uh, land of Canaan was actually a province of Egypt, which is one of the reasons why the Exodus story doesn't make any doesn't make any sense whatsoever, because they would have just gone from one Egyptian province to another. So 
they're they're reasserting their authority. And one of the things they want Egypt is wants to control Canaan because that's a strategic link on the trade route between Egypt and the Assyrian Empire in, in what is known as Mesopotamia, right? The land between the rivers. So you have to come up the coast of Canaan, modern modern Israel, uh, to get up into like Damascus and then on the onto the trade route through the Fertile Crescent. So it's a tr- strategic trade route. So at the time Egypt is rising, Josiah wants to reassert authority himself uh, for Israel. And so they craft this big, long narrative. So the patriarchs is one of them. So just to, to jump back a little bit. So the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were actually two separate kingdoms. Uh, this whole united monarchy thing of, of David and Solomon is a myth that comes out of the Josianic reforms. Uh, they were separate kingdoms. You know, they obviously have uh, cultural roots, you know, coming out of the same sort of people and settling down, but two distinct kingdoms. So about 100 years before um, the the Assyrians, sorry, sorry before the Babylonians, sorry, sorry, I'm getting out of myself, before the Assyrian Empire falls, uh, the Assyrians had conquered the king, northern kingdom of Israel. And that actually, of course, it's one of the historical facts in the Bible that's actually true. Uh, the fact that the, the Assyrians had basically decimated the, the northern kingdom of Israel and deported the, uh, uh, the population. And that's actually, you see that, you see that right up through the Persians. That's actually a tool of imperial control. You break people's lands, uh, ties to the lands and you move them somewhere else. Then you take someone from somewhere else and you move them in, uh, to the northern lands of Israel, which also kind of ties in later to the, the post exile, Babylonian exile, um, prescriptions not to, not to date foreigners because, you know, obviously the, the Assyrians had moved in some foreigners into northern Israel. So it's really complex and complicated. Um, so Israel is basically uh, empty. There are, you know, some people, some remnants who are there. A lot of those have, have come south into Judea's. Uh, and so the, the northern kingdom of Israel is basically bare, but it's also the much better land. Like that's where the olive, the olive groves are, the olive presses. Judah is very barren and arid. Uh, Israel is, is much more uh, an agricultural climate and, and, and lands. So as part of the patriarchal narrative, the, the, the priests and the Josianic reform, they create the patriarchal narrative. Um, and one of the scholars actually says, if you look at the hierarchy, so Abraham, the stories of Abraham are centered around Hebron and Jerusalem. So we make him the grandfather and then the son, uh, Isaac, uh, his stories are centered, uh, I can't remember exactly where those ones are, but the stories of Jacob, the grandson, are centered up in the north, up in the kingdom of Israel. And so this one scholar was actually hypothesizing that there might have been some ancestral truth that these were, you know, somewhat legendary tribal leaders in those respective areas. And so this hierarchy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is then a, a tool of not subjugation is probably the wrong word, but a hierarchy that, okay, so Abraham is the patriarch, the, the first patriarch, and Jacob up in the northern lands of Israel was the grandson. So you get sort of this this ranking that way. And so they kind of create this epic of this great family narrative. See, you know, the lands of Israel, they used to belong to us under David and Solomon, and then these wicked kings of Israel, you know, went off on their own. And if you if you actually read the book of Kings, it's like, you know, they did you know all the kings of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, just it's just blatant propaganda, you know, to the winner, the winner writes the history, right? 
so they create this big family narrative. The same thing happens in the Exodus. So Egypt is trying to take over. So they create the Exodus story. Uh, that, hey, we beat, we beat Egypt before. We can do it again. And so it's all about creating this big family narrative. Uh, and they're projecting themselves back into the Bronze Age. Now, the archaeology has proven that Israel has not, does not exist as a separate people, a distinct people in the Bronze Age. The Jewish people are a product of the Bronze Age collapse and the dawn of the Iron Age. So when the city-states collapsed, these formerly we would today call them Bedouins, uh, these nomadic herders of sheep and goats who would normally have traded with the city-states that all collapsed uh, at the Bronze Age collapse, uh, then move into the central highlands and settle down. And that's when you see the beginnings of the of the Israelite culture emerging, you know, around say 1100 BCE. And then you get the stories of David and Solomon around 1900 BCE. Um, and so it's, a lot of it is very contextualized. So you've got to understand it that in 622, Josiah and his priests are creating this whole narrative of we are one big happy family once, therefore I am entitled to take the lands of the kingdom of, of Israel from myself because they used to belong to my ancestors anyways. Uh, then they went off and did their own thing, but I'm, I'm essentially allowed to have it. Um, and there's a, it's called the, the documentary hypothesis. Uh, and there's some debate over how accurate it is, but it's, I think it has some merit. But if you look at things like why are there two names for God, Jehovah and Elohim, why are there two uh, sanctuaries, Jerusalem and Bethel. And they postulate that this is the merging of the northern and southern traditions during the time of Josiah. So they, they can't just eradicate the, the northern traditions. They've got to find a way to incorporate them. So the northern god is El, the northern sanctuary is Bethel. And so it all starts coming together. And that's why you have two priesthoods, the Aaron and the Levites. So, so a lot of it, again, is very, very contextual. Because it, it, it sort of seems like it's turning it from um, this wondrous myth mythical story of the patriarchs into uh, a, a document, uh, well, like a political document. It's like it's it's changing the narrative completely. If you read what it actually is and if you understand what's actually happened from a historical point of view, you suddenly realize that the Bible isn't some some magical journey of humanity. It's actually politics on a page and i think what i want to just want to i just want to pick up actually on um a little side comment that you actually made throughout that and when you were describing that initial circumstances you turned around and said and that's one story one of the few stories in the bible that's actually true mm -hmm. um and um the very fact that there are actually so few stories in the bible that are actually true that you could make a, a statement like that. I mean, even, you know, we do have the hardcore evangelicals in this country. We do have them. Um, they're not as loud and they're not as powerful as they are, say, in the U.S., but they are out there. Um, and, in fact, we nearly had one uh, running Northern Ireland for a little while, but that's a, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. Um, but even some of the more, we say, liberal-minded believers, um, certainly – those that I know, the vast majority of believers that I know are fairly liberal-minded believers, they still think that there is um, elements of truth in some of these old stories. And how do we actually go about deconstructing that for them, um, helping them understand 
that actually, no, the vast majority of this stuff is either simply made up out of whole cloth or, as you say, actually made up taking grains of truth and making up stories around them to um, perpetuate a political agenda. How do we actually actually do that? I would think you need to encourage them to read the scholarship that's out there. Um, Mm. The funny thing is, is the the archaeological scholarship, uh, it's only been the last generation or two, within the last 20 to 40 years, that the archaeological methodologies have radically shifted. Because prior to about, say, 1980-ish, the archaeologists were going out there with a biblical agenda. It was called the the spade in one hand and the Bible in the other. And they were going out there and were looking for things to confirm the Bible. Um, And so they they would force fit. Yeah. Wasn't there an Israeli, um, a pair of Israeli uh, archaeologists that was sent there into the um, Sinai Peninsula back in the 60s and was told by the uh, the president of Israel at the time, go and dig up the title deeds to Israel. And they came back and they said, um, we've pretty much dug up the entirety of the Sinai Peninsula and there is no evidence whatsoever that the uh, the exodus, yeah. the, the key foundational story really of, is true. Is true. Um, it was Finkelstein and what was the name of the other chap? Uh, Silverman. Well, I don't know, Silverman, Silverman, well, the the documentary, uh, it's actually a book and then it became a documentary. It's called The Bible on Earth, which is written by uh, Finkelstein and Silverman. Whether they were the archaeologists who went out in the 60s, I I don't know if that was there or not. I don't know, but there was was that, there was that, and that happened. And they came back and they said, I'm sorry, but it just isn't there. Yeah. Uh, Back in 2016, the Israel Museum uh, put on a, a, what do you call it, an exhibition, and the the hall for the Exodus was an empty room. So uh, here's even the Israel Museum in Israel putting on this exhibition and saying, there's nothing there. It's a story. So, but there are bound to be uh, a, a, a few little grains of uh, touching on truth because things like major battles, we already have archaeological and historical evidence to, to back that up nothing to do with um, the Bible or, or, or Scripture. We would have known about that even if it wasn't mentioned in in Scripture. Uh, so that, that's already existed. So it's surprising that um, people who put the, you know, the disparate um, various texts of the, the Scripture together over you know, many, many years um, actually knew about these battles. I mean, they'd be closer to them then than we are. But we have the evidence, irrespective of what's in Scripture. For something, yeah, not for everything. Yeah, and, and I'm not talking about everything. I'm talking about you know, yeah. sort of major battles of Assyrians. So we, we 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 know about that anyway. Right. Do you know what, what surprises me though is that the uh, archaeologists would go into uh, the Holy Land, as you say, Jason. We'd look at you know Bible in one hand and spade in the other. And putting any credence on the Bible as some sort of roadmap to history without, you know, because that doesn't seem like the sort of thing that even in, you, you say it's pre-80s, but it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that even pre-80s that someone, you know, people of science would have tried to shoehorn the history into the Bible. Rather, they would just go there, look at the evidence and then 
Uh, religion is a religion is a powerful a powerful set of yeah. blinders. You know? mm. Yeah, I mean, you see, so you, you I remember you talking about something about the, um, you know, the walls of Jericho, the story of the walls of Jericho. Right, uh, that was Kathleen Kenyon, I think, in the fifties. Yeah, the uh, I think it was in the nineteen fifties. Kathleen Kenyon went out uh, and did did a dig on the on the on Jericho, and. If you look at the timeline in the Bible of the when the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan supposedly took place, say sort of around 1200 BCE in that area, that uh, sort of like the late Bronze Age. And, and what Kenyon found was that the walls of Jericho had been destroyed in the middle of the Bronze Age. So say around like 1600, 1500, and the city had basically been abandoned ever since. So Jericho had long been abandoned. And, um one of you gentlemen just mentioned a minute ago about like sort of historical grains of truth. And I think that's what is happening in a lot of these biblical stories is there is some sort of historical nugget that's been passed down through the, the oral tales. And then they get sort of wrapped up in these new biblical tales and, and, and given uh, a new, a new life, a new lease on life with a new, a new sort of background story. So that might've been very well known that Jericho had been destroyed several hundred years ago. Because so. when you think about it, if you think about the way this actually works, you know, in uh, this concept of human history and the timelines and all that sort of thing, it's not surprising, really, is it, that a story like the Walls of Jericho or, or Jericho gets in, involved or embroiled with uh, a damn good story that they're putting together, and it's like, oh, we can put that in and we can put that in and that make it more more fest. Because a lot of these stories, I guess, um, before they were actually written down, were oral stories these were sort of you know sitting around the fire telling telling about their history and so you can understand how that happens what what puzzles me is how it gets put into a book and as you say there's like there's a lot of politics within that you know and it's written through a political view or through a political lens but it just seems strange that today we look back on on the stories within the Bible and sort of justify them as a, as a, a religious narrative that people still follow today. And this is, I mean, we, we've talked about this on, on, uh, on here and also, you know, through ourselves and stuff. like when we just chat online and stuff that, uh, we don't understand why people follow the Bible because we're atheists and that's what we do. We don't understand why people follow the Bible because some of the stories in there are pretty atrocious and there's not much uh, morality going on in and there. so obviously false yeah and then so obviously so false. obviously it's, nonsense yeah it just baffles baffles me and this is why i wanted to get jason on because this because there's there's all these big stories in the bible you know the things like you know the the flood you know and um the story of job you know which which I've, I've often sort of brought up about um because to me that was one of the things when i was a kid when i read the bible i read the, that story of job and i just went this is this is monstrous well, if the, if God's God's real and this is a real entity, and He did this to someone on Earth for a bet, you know, if you haven't, if you don't know the story, Job, go and read it. It make you make you wonder what. The yeah, hell. well, the story of Job was written. So, with the Josianic reforms comes sort of the not probably the birth of monotheism, but the institutionalization of state monotheism with Josiah. Now, the story of Job was probably written about 200 years before that. So, and with, with monotheism, 
when you only have one God who's responsible for everything, suddenly, how do you blame God for evil? And so that's when Satan starts to emerge. Because Satan is basically a, a, an existential reaction to monotheism. So when the story of Job is written about 200 years before the institutionalization of monotheism, you wouldn't necessarily have had this, uh, this problem of evil, which is known as theodicy. Um, and so there's you know, some, some contextualism there as well. So one of, one of the interesting points in the documentary for the Bible on Earth is it is a uh, professor named Baruch Alpern, and he made he made a brilliant comment. It's one of my favorite comments. This is that the the temple in Jerusalem just happens to sit in the backyard of the royal palace. So that tells you how interlinked the the politics are with the religion, you know, and that's why you know the 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 Davidic dynasty has so much hold over the Jewish mentality and Christians mm. to some extent. So. Jason, I was going to um, ask you something. Uh, you mentioned it a while ago, but um, characters like Abraham, etc. Um, were you on any evidence whatsoever that they they existed? As I said, the 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 as they existed in the patriarchal story, none, because they you know the story of Abraham set like in eighteen hundred BCE. The Jews do not emerge for another say eight to seven, seven eight hundred years, nine hundred years in the archaeological record. So. From that perspective, he couldn't have existed. So as I said, this one scholar speculates that perhaps there were some of these these little nuggets of historical truth that there might have been a, a tribal leader in and around Hebron uh, mm-hmm. who was named Abraham. So that there could be some some essence there. But you know, there's unlikely we will ever find any proof, you know, any archaeological sort of tablets with his name. It's, you know, they could be out there, but uh, who knows? Hmm. One question then, I mean, because all of our conversations so far at the moment have been largely confined to the Old Testament. Do any of these ideas um, transfer over into New Testament stories? Yeah, like a lot of the New Testament's made up as well. So like all the Gospels, all the Gospels are written, you know, they're all they're all hearsay, you know. How how would anybody have known what what Jesus was saying, you know, to anybody if they weren't there? Um, particularly like at the at the trial, the Sanhedrin trial. How would anybody have known what what was said? So yeah, and it's all fiction. That, it's all fan are, fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and um, I, I I like the fact that you brought up the sort of the, the trials because um, again, you know, the, the trial before Pilate. You know, we know that Pontius Pilate was a real person. You know, we have archaeological and historical evidence for him but what we have in in history what we have in the record is a completely different character to the one that is portrayed in the gospels for example so it, i think this is another case of having a little nugget of truth having this person who was a real person and then building stories upon it Oh yeah, all of it, all of it, all of the titles given to him have been built on top of him. So yeah, the yeah. fact that the fact that he got deified in the first place is a bastardization of the Jewish uh, phrase "son of God." All Jews were sons of God, but mm. where does Christianity take hold? It takes hold in the Greek world, and if you mm. look at Greek mythology, you've got all of these stories of of Zeus uh, and other gods uh, impregnating mortal women. You know, it happens time and time again in Greek mythology, and you have these demigods. So. Uh, so the fact that Jesus becomes deified in the first place is because they, the Greeks misunderstand son of God. Uh, when Jesus is talking about the son of man, he's talking about Daniel, 
from, uh, sorry, he's talking about Michael, the Archangel Michael, which is in uh, Daniel chapter 12, uh, which says, you know, again, this is an apocalyptic book uh, written at the time of the Maccabean revolt when uh, the Jews are having an existential crisis and they're seeing their culture potentially being annihilated. And this apocalyptic book comes out and says, you know, uh, Michael will stand up and defend us and he's the son of man. Uh, so that gets J- Jesus is talking about hey, Michael's coming any day. You know, you can set your watch. Michael will be here. Don't worry. Don't worry. He's coming in our lifetimes. It's happening. Um, well, so, that's a new thing I've learned today. Thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> so how, I mean, obviously you've, you, you, you know, you've written these books and you're writing another one um, at the moment. And, um, you know, before we came on, we were talking about how do we, because, I mean, I've listened to some of your conversations before and I've listened to some of the things that you've said. And sometimes it, get, it, it runs away from me. Um, and what I'm think, and, and the thing, one of the things that we're interested in doing is trying to get people to understand that these books are mythologies, that these stories are all made up. And we have, and we have as, you, as you demonstrate, the evidence to prove that these things are all made up. How do we make that accessible to the ordinary, everyday person on the street? Someone who isn't perhaps likely to go out and read scholarship, for example. You could maybe have some of these. You know, one of the things I've noticed is you know, people don't really like to read. YouTube seems to be the more chosen vehicle these days for people. You know, They can just sit back and watch a video. So maybe have more of these discussions where you can kind of dis- discuss one, that the Bible is political. Two, that there, a lot of the stories are made up. Uh, three, that there's a lot of forgeries in the Bible. Um, even there's whole books that are forged, like Bart Ehrman has written a book called Forge, that there's entire books of the New Testament that are forged in the name of Paul, because Paul has all this authority. And so, hey, I want to get my book accepted, so I write in the name of Paul, and it gets accepted. Uh, but even within books that Paul did write, there are there are forged passages that have been written and inserted. And, and the scholars know this because they're written in different styles. And if you look at sort of where they're shoved in, like you sort of take this verse and this verse and they go together, but then, you know, right in the middle is like this, this thing that just doesn't make sense. Like uh, Paul is actually quite open and liberal about inclusion, inclusion, the inclusiveness of women. Ooh. And I think it's in first Corinthians. Don't quote me on that. I think it's, if I'm going from memory, it's like First Corinthians 14. There's a passage where Paul says women should be silent in church, but you know it it interrupts the flow of the passages before and after it, mm. uh, and it and it also contradicts what Paul says in Romans. You know, like you know he's introducing women, like junior, like foremost among the apostles, uh, and then it, that gets tied in with. Uh, I want to say Timothy, that the Timothy was written in Paul's name, but it's describing a situation that does not exist in Paul's day, namely that there is an established church with a hierarchy, which does not exist in Paul's day. These are individual communities. All of Paul's letters are written to all these communities, the community in Corinth and the community in Galatia, et cetera, et cetera. But when Timothy is written, you now, you're now well into the second century, the prophecy of Jesus that thou shalt not taste death till my father's kingdom have come. The last apostle has died. Nothing's happened. Oh shit. Uh, how are we going to rebrand our story? 
Uh, so now the church has settled in and you now have an established church. So Timothy is written at a time when there is an established church. And then Paul is saying, you know, women, you know, shut the hell up. Go, go make me make me dinner. So that's obviously at odds with what Paul actually said about women in Romans mm. and like that forged passage that's in Corinthians. So there's lots and lots of scholarship out there. So I think to, to be accessible to people, I mean, maybe we just we have some dialogues with them and, you know, maybe Atheist UK can bring on some scholars. Um, if you're if you're I know I know and, uh, Andy wants to have more uh, casual chats, but, you know, for maybe at Atheism UK after COVID, you know, you guys could maybe invite some scholars from one of the universities to come and give a, a talk in public and you could invite the, the local liberal Christians to come in here. So I know that'd be, I could, that'd be, that'd be, that would be fun. <laughs> so the one I would recommend, um, the book that sort of inspired me to write the book I'm doing right now in the history of atheism uh, was written by the Oxford professor. And I love his title, professor of the history of the, of the church. And his name's uh, Diarmid McCulloch. Uh, and he wrote a book called Christianity, the first 3000 years. It came out in 2009 and BBC actually did a six part documentary series on it as well. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, so I would, I would say if you can invite him down from Oxford, or, uh, you know, that might be good. I, I invited him to come on the show with me and Andy, but he declined. But maybe to come and do a, a live talk, maybe he would be open to something like that. But he's definitely a scholar who's got all of these facts uh, on the New Testament at his fingertips. So. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the thing that's always struck me, and, I, and I've read this ever since, you know, I was young, and there's, there's been quite a lot of books about, where, you know, whether the – you know the validity of the Bible and things like, that, and especially on things like the New Testament. And there's 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 loads of stuff on YouTube about um, uh, about this the story of Jesus, and uh, you know how you've got um, people like uh, you know Osiris is a precursor to the story, or you know you know there's loads of Mithra, and you know do you know all those all those stories that have the same same yeah. narrative of you well, know, son of God, born of a woman that didn't have sex with a man, born of a virgin, and all those sort of yeah. things. They're and common mythology. That's a mistake, isn't it? In, in in translation, that she was it wasn't doesn't say that she's a virgin. She, yeah, she's a, the, a the virgin that, woman or something. That's it's one of the points I made in my first book, Manifest Insanity on the Judeo Christian doctrines, is the very fact that Matthew used the word virgin tells us. He's not living in Judea using the Hebrew Bible. He's living in a diaspora community using one of the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, which had made the this translation error at uh, Isaiah seven fourteen, uh, which was a a passage. So I mentioned earlier that Judah Judah was a vassal state of uh, of the Assyrians. So Josiah's grandfather Hezekiah. So that passage in in Isaiah was written about Hezekiah, Josiah's grandfather, at the time when Judah was submitting to being a vassal state to Assyria. And they're saying, you know, there will be a, a Davidic king who will come who will free us from this this bondage to a foreign power. Um, and so, you know, he's the fact that Matthew and copied by Luke are using this virgin passage just it just adds fuel to the fire, the whole virgin birth narrative and and then later the Catholic Church, you know, doubles down and they insist the perpetual virginity of Mary, that there couldn't have been other children. And it's just it's all nonsense. The, one of the ones I can't remember which scholars, probably several. One of them hypothesizes that 
Mary emerges in in the mythology because Christianity is such a male focused, uh, you know, there's one God and he's male, uh, that Mary is kind of a counterbalance to that sort of one sided. Because if you look at most mythologies throughout history, especially the Eastern mythologies, there's tends to be balance. There tends to be nature and harmony and man and woman. Uh, and so that Mary is kind of a, a counterbalance to this. And so the, the cult of Mary really starts taking off in, in later generations. It's also like, um, again, from, from right from childhood, I was reading uh, a lot of books, which I've realized over, over time probably aren't as, uh, as, as well, uh, researched as they should have been, but uh, nevertheless, they were sort of books that made me think. But there was, I always remember that, that, that um, concept that the, the story of Jesus was just pulled from lots of other types of myths, you know, pre, right. uh, pre Jesus times, you know, yeah. um, like, and, and, you know, Osiris and Mithra and all those sort of things that, uh, you know, born on the 25th of December, born of a virgin, you know, and all those sort of things. Right. Uh, the stories like really line up quite well. So when, even from a child, I was thinking to myself, this can't be what actually happened. It's got to just be, you know, a mythical story built up to, to promote something. And, it, and it, do you think that's what it all, all, it, all this is? It's just to, to create Christianity. Was there, a, was there a, like a, um, a, a purposeful reason for creating this, Christ myth. Yeah, well, I think, like I said, some of it comes from the misunderstandings, such as um, the Son of God, and which ultimately leads to his deification. Um, but I think a lot of it, like the Roman Empire was very syncretic. You know, they they tended to to absorb a lot of other like they would conquer new territory and they would either look for parallel gods, you know, in the Roman pantheon to their pantheon and say, oh, you know, yeah. this is Jupiter and ours, this is his and yours, and if they didn't, they would absorb it. Um, so these there, there were a lot of syncretic movements to, to try to find common ground and, and merge. So, yeah, there's definitely, I think, the borrowing of the Mithra and the Osiris legends probably came about as a result of the mistake made by Matthew in using that virgin. And like, so that was probably a later thing. I'm just speculating, but that's how I would think it oh, would yeah, come about. The Christians then came up with the concept of diabolical mimicry to... Uh explain away all that you know um you know the devil planted those pre pre-christ pre-christian stories to make it look like um jesus was actually a compendium of these previous uh, i mean again no evidence for that whatsoever but it's a good story um, if you if you look at the satanic mimicry so picture everybody picture in your minds the the sort of common features that satan would have so just sort of picture in your mind what you think satan would have now start start deconstructing that so what happens is christianity starts spreading throughout the mediterranean is you start taking all of the gods of those cultures and you take their features and you say oh this is an evil god so the horns of the horns of satan that's ball the cloven feet that's pan the red, the red body and the forked tail, that's set in the Egyptian mythology. So they start taking all of these characteristics of the, of the local gods and you start stapling them onto Satan. Poor Satan. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so 
it's something that they've been very good at for, for, for forever, really, by the sounds of it, in, in terms of stitching these stories together and presenting them as if they're, they are the sort of the final, the final product, which, um, yeah, I, uh, I did a meme for my, my page a few years ago. I was speculating. I, I like to try to do these thought experiments where I think, you know, a thousand, two thousand years in the future and what are they going to be like looking back at us? And mm. given that, given that people tend to be historically ignorant, uh, and they don't bother to look things up and they just accept things on the surface that are that. So I, I created a meme called Jedi Mormontology. Because the Jedi's, the Mormons, and Scientology all kind of have this space theme to them, and so in a thousand years, all three of them will just emerge together into into one big narrative, and and no one will question it. <laughs> There's a story for a book. Oh, oh, Jason, if you get that religion going now, you could make an awful lot of money as their prophet. Well, mm. isn't isn't that what L. Ron Hubbard says? You want to get rich, start a religion, and so he exactly. did. So I actually wrote. Um, when did I write it? 2017. Yeah, I wrote I wrote a full length screenplay on the historical Jesus, and and it, actually this this scholar that when I mentioned it at Oxford, I mentioned it to him, and I talked to an, a Yale scholar who's who's helped me a lot with the Old Testament scholarship, and I said I'm working on this uh, historical Jesus. He says we in the scholarly community have been waiting a long, long time for someone to tackle this, and apparently, um, who is it? There's, there's a director who's working on it right now. Um, I think it was the guy. Uh, it doesn't matter. I can't remember his name. He Apparently, he's he's working on this. And in my screenplay, it, I'm trying to make it relevant by using contemporary references. So uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who goes on to become the head of the Jerusalem church. So when you read Paul's letters, he's talking about James and, and Simon Peter and John. Um, so in my book, James is I've consciously given him the traits of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion and Simon Peter. I've very consciously given him the traits of L Ron Hubbard. So. Awesome. Awesome. Listen, just to round this off um, the other day, Jason, I was talking to you about uh, a video that I saw on YouTube, which was a a rabbi um, talking about the first five books of the Torah. And, uh, and, and I was having a chat with you about, uh, how he was justifying the stories, you know, so the story of the flood and Genesis and the Viticus and all those sort of things. Um, uh, and the reason why I brought it up to you the other day was because when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, what this guy is actually doing is making up a, a shell around the story that when it's obviously very, very well practiced. I mean, it sounds like, you know, him and his, his fellow rabbis have sat around tables, whether that's, you know, virtual tables or whatever, you know, so just talking about this and talking about this and working out how the story, what it actually means, the interpretation, which is the sort of, you know, Gnostic sort of concept of this, you know, this hidden knowledge type thing. You don't really know the actual meaning of this, you know, um, and what it struck me was that it just sounded completely made up. You know, they, they're taking the these books and yeah. you know what the this is what Genesis actually means. You know, it doesn't mean it. You know, it says in the beginning, not the beginning. This is in the beginning. It's not the very beginning, but it's in the beginning. <laughs> and you know, they, they, how uh, the heavens and the earth were created and 
how the earth was the lowest form of, of um, or, you know, the lowest form of, of the world or the, the cosmos or whatever. Um, but it just, it just seemed to me that it just seems like a bunch of people getting around a table and going, how can we justify this? How can we justify what the actual words are? So if it wasn't actually literal that God created the world in seven days or the, you know, everything in seven days, the heavens and the earth, then what does it actually mean? How does that actually, how can we translate that to the young? How can we sort of well, make think- this story palatable and, and like we know more than there is in the Bible? Like we're the ones that have got the knowledge. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, I think Hitch said this, that, you know, you got to remember these are people who didn't know where the sun goes at night. Uh, you know, this is like a pre-literate society who's had these oral stories that get passed around and then finally get written down during the Assyrian age. And it's the, the argument that these rabbis are needing to engage in this sort of mental gymnastics is because they're all arguing from authority, which we know is a logical fallacy. Yeah. They cannot admit that it's bullshit without unraveling their entire, their livelihood, that the, everything they devoted their entire life to. Mm. Um, and so, and, if, and if, if you look at the Talmud, the Talmud, what is the Talmud? It's a, it's a series of discussions between rabbis, right? Where the rabbis are having these disputations and discussions of what all these things mean. So this is actually a fairly common thing throughout Judaism. Um, now, Maimonides, who was an, an Aristotelian philosopher in the late 1100s, sort of, he was sort of the first to formulate this concept of allegorism, that if something doesn't fit, like the story of Joshua stopping the sun at Jericho. Obviously, we know that's not physically possible, so it must be interpreted figuratively. So, and this is where Spinoza comes along, and he's he's like just utterly dismissive of the of the rabbis and Maimonides, and he's like he says the rabbis are completely crazy, uh, and he dismisses Maimonides completely. You know, they they can't just go to the lowest common denominator and say it's it's just nonsense. You know, so they won't. So they have to come up with all these rationales. Uh, which is just ludicrous. So rather than just stripping it down, you know, the the ultimate regression back to, you know, the, the first premises. Um, and I was actually thinking the first convert that I know of was talking to this girl uh, and she'd been searching for the truth. You know, she had been raised in a Catholic family and she'd gone to an evangelical church, a Muslim church, and she kept searching through all these different faiths looking for the answer. And I was the first person that actually made sense to her. I said, well, how about the fact that they're all wrong? They're all starting from the premise that there is something when the right answer is there is nothing. And that was the first time that anybody had ever given her an answer that actually made any sense. And like the light just went on for her in that moment. So Incredible. Incredible. Well, and that's what these rabbis We've come to the end of our uh, our time. Otherwise, we're going to overstay our welcome, and people are going to bugger off. So we're gonna, <laughs> we're going to sort of bring this to an end, um, okay. guys. It's been great again. I, I, I love talking about this stuff. You know, it just uh, it's so so interesting. If you've got any questions, put them underneath the video. Um, ask us anything. We're uh, we don't we can't say we were going to be able to answer everything, but we'll try um, in our best way we possibly can with. Uh, as much honesty as we possibly can, because we've got no axe to grind here. Uh, Embers, Rich, and Jason, yep. thanks very much for joining us today. Brilliant, today. And fantastic. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and press the bell.
Yeah, subscribe, <laughs> subscribe, subscribe. <laughs> We've only just started this, and we need 100 people subscribing, otherwise we can't do anything. <laughs> we can't push it anywhere. So, yeah, please subscribe. Um, but, yeah, comment as well, because th- th- that's what we will survive on, is, like, you know, getting some feedback and 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 that sort of thing. But, anyway, all right, so that's, that's it for today. Um, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Well, thanks for joining us today, and don't forget to click that like button. Also, make a comment, and of course, subscribe to the channel. We'll see you next time.